Well, it's only just over a month since all of the COVID legal restrictions were removed from all parts of the UK. We've been through a crisis that's lasted for two years. And I guess we're all hoping that we're emerging from that and won't need to go back to any kind of lockdown or any kind of restriction. I think it's hard um, at this stage to assess what the long-term impact of that crisis will be on society and on churches. But it's clear that we probably won't simply um, return to normal and we can't just um, return um, to normal. But it seems to me that as we think about the situation that the church is facing, it's not just the COVID crisis that's affecting our context and our churches and our ministries. In many ways, I don't think that the COVID crisis is the most significant challenge that we face. It seems to me that at the moment we are experiencing a massive change in our culture, perhaps a a once in a generation cultural shift that's taking place. We've uh, just come out of the COVID crisis, but the reality is that we've faced a series of crises going back um, uh, more than a decade. We can look back to the um, economic crisis of 2008, the Brexit Brexit crisis of 2016, and then um, in 2020, the uh, COVID uh, crisis. And together, those series of crises have caused uncertainty, instability, fear, and anxiety. In many ways, our culture and our society has lost its confidence and its assurance. The days when we might remember singing, things can only get better, are long gone. Trust in leaders has been shattered by a whole series of scandals and failures. Obviously, the ongoing partygate crisis that has cast a spotlight on apparent leadership failings, even at the highest level. Our society is facing a difficult economic shock, with uh, huge rises in the cost of living, inflation set to reach 10%, living standards are moving backwards. We're a society facing multiple social problems, uh, a very significant mental health crisis, a massive backlog of physical problems that the NHS has been unable to deal with during the COVID crisis. And in all of those ways, there is a hope deficit um, in society. I think as we think about where we are, we need to recognise that the massive cultural change is the triumph of liberal progressivism, which in our culture and our society has won the cultural battle. We might talk about a culture war, but the reality is it's much more like a a guerrilla resistance. We are still a divided society as the remnants of the uh, old morality clash with the dominant new morality. But the reality is there's a massive generational divide and and generational different expectations um, in society. The clash between those who are woke as against those who are populist, those who are millennial and Gen Z as against those who are boomers. But there's no doubt that the younger generations have bought in wholesale to liberal progressivism. A recent um, EU government uh, survey conducted even in this last week suggests that actually society far more generally has bought into the outlook of liberal progressivism. And that's not necessarily a bad uh, uh, situation. 80% of people in Britain have said 
that they believe it's important to be alive to issues of race and social justice. Even if they don't use the label woke to describe themselves, they're concerned about those issues uh, in society. But the victory of liberal progressivism means that the progressives are no longer seeking to deconstruct the established social order. In many ways, they have become the social order, and their challenge is that they're having to begin to construct um, an alternative. In some ways, the parallel is not unlike 1649 at the end of the English Civil War, when the parliamentarians had won and decapitated the king, and suddenly they faced the challenge of having to put something in the place of the regime they'd overthrown. And that, I think, is the situation in which liberal progressives are in in our society today. And as they seek to do that, there are inevitable, inevitable tensions that we see. Most obviously, the tension between, for example, feminists and those who advocate transgender um, ideology. I think we might see some of those tensions and we might wonder whether that is the, the, the breaking up of the edifice of liberal progressivism. But I think that would be a mistake. Those are just some internal debates that are going on as they seek to construct what a new future will look like. Uh, I think for us as Christians, we're used to thinking of progressives as being people who are advocating immorality. And in many ways, that's uh, the nature of the social revolution that took place in the 1960s, a deliberate overthrowing of what was seen as restrictive, um, the deliberate adoption of a hedonistic uh, lifestyle and the rejection of moral restraints. Pleasure and freedom was uh, to be found in breaking moral boundaries. But I think we're mistaken if we think that that is the nature of today's liberal progressivism. Today's liberal progressives see themselves as deeply moral. They see themselves as opposing injustice, oppression and discrimination. They see themselves as righting the wrongs of history. They see themselves as a fundamentally moral movement, not a movement for the promotion of immorality. Now, inevitably, there's been some uh, counter-reaction to this success of liberal progressivism. We've seen around the world in places the rise of populism, and it's enjoyed some political success. But around the world, it seems that that rise of populism is waning. Populism has not delivered. The simplistic solutions that it proposes haven't uh, kind of worked. In the US, more than in the UK, evangelicals are deeply divided over political issues. And sometimes we can kind of uh, seek to view our own society through a US lens. But the reality is, in the UK, we've long since ceased to be um, a Christian culture. More widely, I think our culture is experiencing an identity crisis. What we see in the world is that a Western hegemony is um, under threat. We see um, the rise in the post-Cold War period of authoritarian and national nationalistic regimes as the alternative to Western liberal democracy whether that be in Russia, China, uh, or India. The post-Cold War world order is breaking down. And nowhere has that been seen more clearly, clearly than in Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Remains to be seen whether in that sense that regalvanizes the West and reunites um, the West. 
In our own context, we are increasingly a multicultural and multi-ethnic nation. And that inevitably has led us to question our own self-understanding. <coughs> our own past and our present are being re-evaluated. Like most nations, we instinctively want to think of ourselves as good, at least in comparison to others. We like to think ourselves are better. In many ways, we are the uh, kind of national equivalent of the, the Pharisees in the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector. We look at others and we say, thank God we're not like them. But we've had to face up to the reality of our history and the reality of our society. The Black Lives Matter movement have fo has focused intense scrutiny on the issues of race and racial discrimination within our society. The history of empire has begun to reveal the reality of slavery, racism and, and exploitation. The mythologies we've told ourselves about our goodness after the Second World War are unraveling. The myth that Churchill stood alone against Hitler is kind of uh, countered with the claim that he allowed millions to starve in Bengal. Our history is no longer simple, but deeply contested. COVID, I think, has exposed that people's values are not what we might expect. At one level, the uh, Brexit vote was a shock to the um, establishment, but so has been the public response to COVID restrictions. The COVID restrictions have overall enjoyed massive public support. Those who thought that the British population are a freedom-loving people who are willing to risk death have been disappointed by the way those um, uh, restrictions have been received. The public mood is more one of collectivism rather than individualism and health and safety as people's priorities. Against that background, Christianity and the church are a tiny minority in society with little voice and little influence, increasingly marginalised. The church and Christian belief are in spectacular decline. And in many ways, that has been exacerbated by the COVID crisis. Non-evangelical churches and denominations are, are facing catastrophic collapse. During the COVID crisis, ministry was not able to be sustained. And after the COVID crisis, congregations are not returning. Many of those churches are facing a demographic time bomb as congregations are increasingly um, elderly. The evangelical church is under intense pressure to compromise with the culture, particularly over LGBTQ rights. A number of the uh, non-evangelical um, denominations have already affirmed same-sex marriage, whether the Methodist Church or the Church of Scotland. The Baptist Union um, uh, doesn't take action against local churches that approve same-sex relationships on the grounds of their independence. And it's not surprising that therefore congregations are, are leaving these denominations because of a, a abandoning biblical orthodoxy. Only a minority of the population identify as Christian in any sense. The most recent uh, census that was conducted in 2021 suggests that something like 51% of people identify as Christians, which is down 
um, from something more like 68% um, in the previous uh, census. A survey was um, published this week that was undertaken for the uh, Talking Jesus Project, a kind of a, a survey of attitudes towards Christianity that was first conducted in 2015 and has now been um, updated. And the Talking Jesus survey uh, found that 48% of people in Britain identified um, as Christian. That's uh, fallen by 10% since 2015. But it's noticeable that of those 48%, 42% describe themselves as non-practicing. So in no real sense are they Christian. They don't go to church, they don't pray, they don't read their Bible. They're just Christian in the vaguest of cultural sense. And we all know that a non-practicing Christian is a contradiction in terms. If Jesus is Lord, you have to live for the Lord Jesus. It's clear that um, uh, even those who identify as Christian are in an older age bracket. 63% of those over 65 identified as Christian. And only 29% of those between 18 and 24. Surprisingly, the survey says that 45% of people believe in the resurrection. And some people have taken great hope and confidence from this expressed belief in the resurrection. Again, when you dig beneath the figures, only 15% say that the resurrection happened the way it says in the Bible. And my guess is the vast majority of those who say they believe in resurrection have absolutely no idea how the New Testament understands the resurrection as a bodily raising to life of the Lord Jesus. They certainly, if they believe in that, they don't uh, understand the implications of that, that Jesus is the Lord who's ruling and reigning, and therefore they should live to serve him. The probability is most of them have some vague sense of kind of life after death, in just the same way that they would speak about um, people who've died um, uh, sort of having life after death. And in that sense, they probably don't think of Jesus as particularly unique. It's not a proper understanding of the resurrection. 40% of people who were surveyed said they did not believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. 40% don't even believe Jesus existed, despite all of the uh, secular historical evidence that would point to the certainty of the existence of Jesus. That reveals something of the scale of the challenge that we face. And yet, despite all of that, Despite all of the cultural pressures, despite all of the challenges of COVID, despite the decline of Christianity and non-evangelical churches and denominations, evangelical churches are res resilient and growing. One of the encouraging things is how um, evangelical churches have endured the COVID crisis. Because they are word-centred, many have been able to move their ministry quickly online. And because they're committed to wanting to gather together, uh, many have been quick to return to in-person gatherings. Over the course of the COVID period, I think we've heard more reports within FIEC of conversions in local churches than in any period I can remember over the last 10 years. New people are coming to church. People in particular have taken the opportunity to leave churches that were losing their evangelical moorings to find churches that are faithfully teaching the Bible. The vast majority of evangelical churches have maintained unity um, through the crisis, although there's been some division over how to respond to COVID. 
Many churches have discovered the opportunities of technology to be able to connect with and reach people that they were not connecting with before. We've heard great stories about the impact of online Christianity Explored courses, or of people who've tuned in to um, church online and then when churches have reopened have come to church because of what they've heard and what they've seen. At the same time as making use of technology, we've also rediscovered the vital importance of physical gatherings and community. And that that is absolutely essential to the Christian life. And in the midst of these challenges, we've uh, faced significant leadership crises uh, within evangelicalism. We've had the exposure of a number of appalling cases of abusive leadership, which have called into question the very culture of conservative um, evangelicalism. Well, just thinking about where we are culturally and what's happening in the church has probably thoroughly depressed you. But I think it's essential that we grasp and face up to the scale of the challenge that we face. We're called to administer the gospel to our culture from a flawed church. And the reality is that it's easy for us to feel intimidated and inadequate, to feel depressed and to feel beleaguered. So the question is, how do we face the challenge of these times? And what I want to do is I want to turn us to 1 Timothy for help as we think about how to minister in these challenging times. The reason for that is actually because I've been studying 1 Timothy for myself in my own personal reading for the past few weeks. And I found it helpful for resetting my priorities. But I think the reason that 1 Timothy is so helpful is it's all about leading a church in a crisis situation. Paul was uh, writing to Timothy to encourage him and direct him to address multiple problems that were faced in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was based. The church in Ephesus was facing challenges that were both internal and external. Challenges within the church, but also from the wider culture. And Timothy was called to lead a church in the face of multiple crises. And whilst it's easy to be discouraged by the challenge, the letter encourages us to meet these challenges and to make the most of the opportunities. Before we dive into some specifics, there are just two central truths in 1 Timothy that bring perspective that I think is really helpful for us. The first is that we shouldn't be surprised by the challenges that we face because we're living in the last days. Chapter 4, verse 1, um, Paul speaks about the latter times. And what the Bible means by the last days, what Paul meant by the last days, is the entire period from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return. It's the final age of salvation history before God's plan is finally consummated and completed. The last days were present for Timothy, and they're still the era of history that we live in. What Paul says is that this era of the last days is not going to be some kind of utopia. It's not going to be a, a cultural war, but it is going to be a spiritual battle where we're laboring against sort of sin and deceiving spirits. That's the reality. We shouldn't be surprised by the challenges that we face. And then the second great truth 
to give us perspective is that it's the church which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's what um, Paul says to Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 15. We need to grasp the central importance of the church to the purposes of God. The church is God's household. And whereas we might expect Paul to say to Timothy that it's the gospel that's the foundation of the church, actually what Paul says, it's the church which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. What that means is the church, the people of God, the church community has to uphold the, the truth of the gospel. That's why it's so important that we put the church right so that the truth of the gospel is upheld in um, a lost world. So Paul is writing to Timothy to put the church right so that the church will be able to make the most of the opportunities. Well, I think as we enter into this post-COVID period, we have an opportunity to put the church right so that it meets the challenges of the times. And I think if we uh, look at 1 Timothy, there are really three big priorities that we need to have. And they're essentially uh, encapsulated in the three trustworthy sayings that run through the letter and that summarise Paul's uh, instructions. We haven't got time to read through the letter. I I'm going to have to take it for granted that you know the letter reasonably well. I'd encourage you to go away and read the letter for yourself. But what I want to do is to look at these three trustworthy sayings and see how they apply to us, um, how they help us to know how to meet the challenges um, of our times. Uh, and the first of those, the first thing that we need to do is keep our focus on the gospel, to keep our focus on the gospel. That's really summarised in the trustworthy saying in chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a reminder to us of what it's all about. The church is all about rescuing sinners from the coming judgment of God. It's all about people believing and receiving the gift of eternal life through Jesus. And this is a reminder to us that our task is to preach this gospel. That's why we want, for example, to pray and campaign for the continued freedom to preach the gospel. That's what Paul wanted the church to pray for in chapter two when they prayed or he urged them to pray for rulers and authorities. And it's why we want to live in a way that commends the gospel, because the great task is rescuing sinners from the coming judgment of God. And we need to have um, confidence that there is no one who is beyond the grace and mercy that's available in the gospel. Paul wants the uh, church um, in Ephesus and Timothy to realise that. Paul showed, uh, God showed mercy to Paul, describes himself as the chief of sinners, a persecutor of the church. And that is a reminder that uh, God can therefore show mercy to anyone. There is no one beyond the scope of the rescue and the forgiveness that's available in Christ. But 1 Timothy reminds us that the great challenge for us is, is that we often become distracted from the gospel and other priorities take the place of the gospel, maybe um, unintentionally, maybe even unnoticed. And I think as we emerge from the COVID crisis, it would be all too easy for other things to take priority. 
And in uh, 1 Timothy, I think there are four major distractions from the gospel that can distract the church from the priority of saving sinners. They're things that either cause the church to turn inwards or the church to turn outwards in a wrong way. Well, the first of those, the first of those distractions is false teaching within the church. False teaching within the church that undermines the gospel, that causes the church to lose confidence in it. And that was one of the things that Timothy needed to deal with in um, Ephesus. In the context of Ephesus, the form of the false teaching was a kind of a legalistic false teaching that added to the gospel. It was a kind of a Jewish asceticism that um, forbade people from eating certain foods and forbade people um, from a kind of marriage. In our context, the false teaching we face might be of a different kind. It might be of a libertarian false teaching that rejects God's moral standards. But whether the false teaching is legalistic or libertarian, false teaching distracts from the gospel and the church turns inward rather than uh, outward. We see that, don't we, in the struggles that the Church of um, England is facing at the moment as it engages in the living in love and faith process. So much of energy and attention is taken up with internal debates because of false teaching. Sadly, the church has not practiced a proper cancel culture. Rather than cancelling false teaching in the church, churches have too often indulged false teaching. Rather than no platforming false teachers, false teachers have been given a platform in the church. And the net result is distraction from the work of the gospel. Well, a second distraction from the work of the gospel is controversy and speculation over secondary issues, in which the church is taken up with infighting and arguing over matters of little importance. Again, we find that that was happening in the church at Ephesus. The church, because of these false teachers, was arguing over what Paul describes as myths and genealogies. It seems that that was kind of speculations based on Old Testament interpretations. And it led within the church to fiercely fought quarrels and disagreements. And they distract from the work of the gospel. And I think we've seen that, haven't we, as we've um, sort of uh, been in this COVID crisis, as there have been fights within the church as to how to respond to COVID. And we see it as we wrestle with how to deal with issues in contemporary culture. Controversy and speculation over secondary issues. A third distraction from the gospel is what we might call cultural imperialism. What I mean by that is um, our desire to impose our culture on others, to force others to conform to our tastes. But what we do is we dress that up as obeying God's word. In essence, that's again what was happening in um, the church uh, in Ephesus. The uh, false teaching and the controversies that we thought about were all about seeking to force people to adopt a Jewish identity. And the message that was being communicated is the gospel is no longer for everyone. In order to be um, rescued um, uh, by Christ, you need to essentially adopt um, a Jewish identity and practices and behaviour. And so the mission of the church ends up becoming a cultural mission. 
to make people like us. We, in a sense, communicate that our culture is the gospel culture. And then lastly and fourthly, the fourth big distraction is the distraction of politics, which is the danger that the church involves itself too deeply in the politics of an unbelieving world. Paul urges the um, church in Ephesus to pray for those who are in authority, for kings, rulers and governors. But it's striking what he asks them to pray for. He asks them to pray that Christians might live a quiet life. And actually, in the context of the first century, the idea of a quiet life is a non-political life. The mission of the church in the Bible is not to foster overt revolution, nor is the mission of the church to redeem the culture. Essentially, the church is to establish an alternative culture that reflects the gospel and invite people to come on in and join it because it is so much better. And the problem with the distraction of politics is that politics in the contemporary world forces us into a false binary. A false binary between progressive or populist, radical or reactionary. The way that British um, political parties are at the moment, no British political party represents a truly Christian biblical agenda. In fact, all of the parties are bought into kind of liberal progressivism, so you can't have social conservatism combined with social justice in the current mix in British politics. So people are forced to choose between political parties, um, uh, neither of which is biblical. And rather than falling for the lure of politics, it seems that our task as God's people is to critique society by the standards of God's word. And it's God's word that tells us what is right, what is wrong. And what we discover in 1 Timothy in chapter 1 verses 8 to 11 is it's God's law that sets the standards. And you see, when we judge by God's law, we discover that um, actually what God thinks is right doesn't fit with either the, the liberal progressives or the reactionary position. God's word holds together positions that our society says it's not possible to hold together. So, for example, um, God's word we um, read um, uh, here condemns slave traders and sexual immorality. It's quite clear in God's law, which Paul says is for unbelievers, those who um, aren't living in God's way. Um, it condemns those who are slave traders. And our society would overwhelmingly agree with that. But at one and the same time, it also condemns sexual immorality. Whereas our society would say if you... Uh, kind of have a liberal progressive agenda, it's all one package. Uh, it's why, for example, in 1 Timothy, you can on the one hand have a tremendous concern for caring for vulnerable women. Chapter 5, there's a huge amount of uh, attention to the care of widows within the church, some of the most vulnerable members of society. Very high view of women. But yet at the same time, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul maintains the creation principle of male leadership in the church. See, God's word can't be fitted into secular categories. We don't fit into the binary of contemporary politics. 
And one of the areas where that's so seen is in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, kind of critical race theory and how Christians have um, responded to that, some finding it a useful tool of analysis of kind of problems in society, others seeing it as a, a, a non-Christian false gospel. At its heart, Christian uh, critical race theory basically simply says that um, in society, the uh, policies that are adopted have um, the effect of causing um, inequality for those from different racial communities. And that racism is not just personal um, sort of animosity to people of another color or feeling that people of another color are inferior, but it's actually the whole way that society is, uh, is constructed so as to benefit some but not others. Kind of an institutional or systemic uh, kind of racism. And some Christians have dismissed that on the ground that it's, it's Marxist in its origin. And in America, there's been a particular critique of that on the grounds that um, uh, sort of at the heart of critical race theory is the, is the idea that there should be equality between people. The very idea of promoting equality and social justice is seen as somehow unbiblical. And I wonder if one of the reasons for that is because we sometimes have too narrow an understanding of God's law and what it says to us. So the argument of some of those critiques um, is that in the Bible, justice is only retributive. It's never social. Justice is all about giving people what they deserve because of their moral behaviour. But I wonder if that flows from a, a kind of a rather narrow reading of God's word. Because when we look at God's word, we discover that God has a great concern for equality and justice within society. Within the uh, people of Israel, when the land is conquered, it's distributed so that every family is given a share of the inheritance. The regular year of Jubilee is basically a 50-year redistribution of wealth to take people back to the starting point. The laws commanding uh, kind of tithes and gleaning are all about caring for those in society who are on the margins. The New Testament expresses a desire for equality. Paul's big argument in 2 Corinthians about encouraging the Gentile churches to give to um, uh, the, the kind of poorer churches in Judea is that it's about seeking to bring about an equality between them. And I wonder if part of the problem there is to, in a sense, buy into the idea of a division of the law into different categories of the kind of the moral, the civil and the ceremonial. And if you only look at the moral law, of course you'll conclude that justice is only retributive. But actually, the civil law shows that in God's view, justice is far bigger than that. We need to be guided in the way that we approach these issues by God's word and by God's law that reflects his uh, kind of character. So as we come out of COVID, it's vital that we resist these temptations, that we keep the gospel the priority. That doesn't mean to say that evangelism is the only thing that we do. But it does mean that we do everything with a gospel purpose. I think we need to recognise there is great opportunity. As we come out of this COVID crisis, people are lost and in need of mercy. Maybe people are looking for hope in a way that they weren't beforehand. And that's before we think about the other crises that have erupted since. We need to use God's law to reveal sin so that they will see that they need mercy. Uh, the new morality of liberal progressivism leads to tremendous self-righteousness 
on the part of those who bought into it. But it's the law of God that punctures that. Chapter 1, verse 8. The law, Paul says, is for unbelievers. It's for people who need to know their need of grace. And the law is perhaps a resource that we haven't sufficiently used. As we think about the people that we're reaching in our society, it seems to me that essentially the main groups of people we're dealing with, particularly amongst the younger generation, are essentially progressive Pharisees. We we think that we're dealing with those who are like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. But the reality is that they see themselves as like the older brother who are doing what is faithful, moral and just. So keep the gospel the priority. Secondly, establish good order in the church. This is the uh, the second major theme of 1 Timothy, is the essential need of establishing good order in the church because the church is the household of God, his family. And like any family, the church needs to be managed and organised because it won't organise itself. And that requires effective leadership. So the second of the trustworthy sayings is in chapter 3 and verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Well, in a context of crises, which is what the church in Ephesus was facing, leadership feels like an overwhelming and thankless task. Leaders feel um, exhausted and fearful of leading. But Paul says that it's a vital task that needs to be honoured. And it's a major theme of 1 Timothy, the need to appoint suitable leaders at multiple levels in the life of the church. Elders who will oversee the church and the teaching of the church. Deacons who will serve people in the church. Um, And I think uh, women So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about the widows who are to be supported by the church. And I think they're a kind of order of ministry who are expected to serve within the life of the uh, church community and be a blessing to it. Some of these leaders are to be properly paid and properly uh, honoured because they're essential to the life of the church. The focus on what's required for their appointment is on their character. They are to be respectable, respected, and not abusive. They're to have a proven character that makes them suitable for exercising this uh, leadership role. And they're to be held accountable. Chapter 5 speaks about how the um, elders, the leaders of the church, are to be protected against false allegations that might be made against them. But allegations that are true and accurate may mean that they're to be removed and they're rebuked if if they've sinned. It's clear that leaders are accountable to um, the church community. Well, as we come out of COVID, churches need leaders and they need leaders of of the right character who are going to be able to manage uh, and lead the church well. And I think we can begin to see what some of those um, essential tasks of management for the church are. As we come out of these uh, times, leaders are going to have to regather the people. In most cases, as churches begin to gather again, the congregation is not the same. There are some people who have not come back. Uh, There are some people who are less committed than they were beforehand. 
In many cases, the church fringe has disappeared. But at the same time, there's a whole new group of people who have come, whether new converts or people who've moved from other churches, people who've perhaps moved location, and churches are beginning to gain a new fringe. Churches have generally grown in terms of the total number of people attending, but those people are at the moment attending less often because they're sort of doing multiple other things at weekends, catching up on two years of lost at life. Leaders need to regather the people. Leaders will need to re-establish teams. Many of those who were volunteering and serving in church have stepped back. Maybe they'd been wanting to step back for some time and COVID has given them the opportunity to do that. But the question is raised, who will take their place? For some, they've simply got out of the habit of serving and it's difficult to get back into it. One of the key tasks for leaders is going to be re-establishing teams for ministries in the church. And here, perhaps the danger for us is of compromising on the character that's needed because we're desperate to have the people to do things. Thirdly, leaders are, are going to have to reevaluate ministries. COVID has given an opportunity for us to reflect on what we do and whether what we do is what we should do. Many churches prior to the COVID crisis knew that they had overstretched programmes, that people were at breaking point already. So um, uh, it's an opportunity to reevaluate ministries and whether they should restart everything. It's an opportunity to think about how we do things, services, prayer meetings, small groups. And I think leaders are recognising the increased importance of an emphasis on discipleship. Are we as churches growing people to maturity? Some churches have recognised their ministries were gathering people but not growing disciples. We need to be building a community of disciples, not gathering people to consumer performance. And leaders might want to ask the question, what unexpected opportunities has COVID revealed? What opportunities for the gospel that they didn't know were there are there and uh, to make the most of those new opportunities? Maybe our online evangelism would be an obvious example. Leaders need to have realistic expectations about how quickly things will restart and return to normal to recognise the reality that people are still tired and recovering. In a sense, there's an emotional and spiritual long COVID effect that people are suffering. And it will take time for people to be um, uh, restored. And then lastly, leaders themselves need rest. As we come out of the COVID crisis, many leaders are themselves drained and exhausted. They've had to manage years of a persistent change and pressure. Inevitably, they may be spiritually, physically, emotionally drained and dry. And it's crucial that leaders are refreshed to be able to lead. The church for its future will need refreshed uh, leaders. It's no good if kind of leaders rush back into restarting the church only to burn themselves out. Leaders need to take the rest that they need. And all these things are leadership challenges. They're not a distraction from the gospel because ultimately the church is the essential platform for the gospel. 
and it will take wisdom and patience. So if you're a leader and you feel like giving up, can I say to you, please don't. Your church needs you. And if you're somebody in a church who has gifts and character for leadership at whatever level, can I urge you to be willing to step up to the plate? Because the church needs you. Uh, it may be that you're somebody who was involved in a ministry before COVID, and you may need to accept that that particular ministry may not restart. That there needs to be um, a change. Please be prepared to accept that change for the benefit of the church and the community and its ministry as a whole. This is a time to reconstruct. And we need to ask our questions, is what we do genuinely fit for our mission purpose? Is what we do genuinely sustainable? Well, thirdly and lastly, the last big priority of one Timothy is to pursue and practice godliness. To pursue and practice godliness. If we want to have an impact on our lost society and world, then as those who are the pillar and foundation of the truth, we need to pursue and practice godliness. 1 Timothy has a huge emphasis on the importance of the respectability of the church in wider society. The church needs to live in a way that commends the gospel to a sceptical world. And that's not just in terms of what we say, but in also in, in terms of what the world sees of us. So the third trustworthy saying is in chapter 4 and verse 6. The uh, trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance is this, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, godliness in um, 1 Timothy is essentially piety. It means gospel living. It means serving God in the practicalities of everyday life. And godliness is not just something that's personal, but it's something that's corporate. In effect, in uh, 1 Timothy, you might describe godliness as being a kind of gospel sociology for the life of the church community. And in 1 Timothy, there are at least three dimensions for what godliness will look like in the church. Firstly, godliness will mean that the church should care for the needy within the church community. That's really the uh, focus of chapter five, where the, um, uh, the concern is support for widows, those who have um, a, a most vulnerable position in society. And the church is to care for uh, widows, particularly for the widows within the church who have no one else to care for them. That reflects kind of God's heart for the widows. We find that running all the way through the Old Testament. And we see uh, right from the very beginning, the early church, for example, in Acts chapter six, had a concern to feed and care for uh, widows. And Paul says that caring for widows is putting religion into practice. What does godliness look like? What does true religion look like? Well, he says it looks like caring for your widows. A, a, a person who has widows in their family who doesn't care for them is denying their religion. So in um, uh, chapter five, Paul establishes a structured system to support widows uh, in the church, to care for those who have no family members who are able to care for them. And that provision and care for the needy makes the church hugely attractive 
utterly different from the surrounding society, which did not care for widows. We see in the book of Acts that one of the things that was attractive about the early church was within the church community, there were no needy people among them because of the way they were willing to share. And one of the uh, key ways in which the uh, early church grew and impacted and ultimately overcame the Roman Empire was because of its care for the poor, its care for women, its care for children, its care for the sick, its care for the, the weak and the vulnerable. In fact, one of the interesting things that's come out of COVID is remarkable opportunities for the church to serve community and meet needs through, for example, kind of food banks. The church should care for the needy. Secondly, the church should actively subvert oppressive social structures. It's the task of the church. Actually, in the gospel, there is a remarkable racial reconciliation because the gospel is for all people, for Jews and Gentiles alike, because there is one mediator, the saviour, uh, Jesus Christ. The church is the place in which racism of all kinds should be being overcome in the new community of the people of God. The false teaching, as we've seen, undermined that by forcing people to conform to a particular cultural identity. But perhaps the um, social structure that's most in view in 1 Timothy is that of slavery, which was a massive challenge for the early church. Because in um, uh, the uh, early church, in the first century, slavery was absolutely endemic to Greek and Roman society. There was no chance of the church, which was a tiny minority, uh, of abolishing slavery. And one of the risks for the church was being seen as dangerous social revolutionaries, as many slaves were responding to the gospel. I want Timothy presents a really interesting um, perspective on the way that the church um, actively subverted the unjust social structure of slavery. The church clearly recognised the um, evil of slavery. Chapter 1 verse 10 we've seen um, uh, uh, that the law of God was against slave traders. It was ungodly and sinful to enslave people in that way. But yet at the same time in chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, Paul urges slaves to respect and serve their masters as an outworking of their godliness. And his desire is to protect the public reputation of the church. The church has to live in this difficult situation of a social institution that cannot be overthrown, which it believes is wrong, but it wants to uh, undermine. And slavery is subverted by the gospel as slaves and masters are equal in Christ and fellow uh, kind of believers. So the gospel does transform society. It does defeat oppressive social systems and ultimately within the Roman Empire, because of the growth and the triumph of the church, slavery was abolished. And it does that by changing attitudes and beliefs and modeling a better way that subverts those unjust social structures. But I think the question for us, particularly in our context, is why is it that so often the evangelicals seem to be the defenders of oppression and historic injustice? We see that in the reaction against what's described as woke culture. 
And there's a danger that we end up seeming to defend what is indefensible. In a sense, the gospel means that um, we ought to be more progressive than the progressives, more concerned for social justice than the social justice warriors. We need to apply the gospel to both personal sin and systemic injustice. For that might that for us that might mean racism of all types, human trafficking, pornography, abortion, economic inequality. And it's within the community of the church that we begin to actively subvert these oppressions as we seek to bring about a new community of justice and love where people are of equal value because of their relationship with Christ. The church should actively subvert social, oppressive social structures. And then thirdly, the church should encourage the powerful to trust God and be generous. The church should encourage the powerful to trust God and be generous. Part of this is that Paul urges those who have social power to be willing to set it aside. He particularly addresses those who are rich. And he urges those who are rich in the church not to put their hope in wealth. In a sense, not to find their security in their social status um, and their power. Instead, they're to do good. They're to be rich in good, good deeds. They're to be generous and willing to share. In essence, what he's saying to the rich is they're to be willing to voluntarily forego their privilege so as to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not to treat that privilege as an entitlement that makes them better, but instead they're to see it as a responsibility that they are to steward. They're to live in the light of eternity and the coming kingdom. Because essentially, Paul says, you can't take your privilege with you into the new creation. You come into the world with nothing, you leave the world with nothing. You can't take it with you. There's no point securing your privilege in this world. Paul says instead, use it to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's a challenge for us because many of us are immensely privileged in worldly terms. The question is, what are we going to do with it? COVID has brought home to us and to many of our church members just how much disposable income they really have. As social and recreational spending um, uh, was no longer possible. Many churches and Christian organisations have actually seen a significant increase of giving over this period. Because people had more free income. Are we going to go back to our old patterns or are we going to rethink the way we use the resources with which we've been blessed? Are we going to live for the present or are we going to live in the light of eternity? Well, far more could be said. I realise I've only scratched the surface as we've looked at uh, 1 Timothy. But I do think this book helps us to meet the challenges that we face and to seize the opportunities that we need and to lead the church in a time of crisis. These three priorities, focus on the gospel, establish good order in the church and pursue and practice godliness are what we need to give ourselves to. In fact, they're what we constantly need to keep giving ourselves to. They're not unique to um, a crisis situation. 
And we'll all have to work out what that will look like in our specific context. But maybe you're thinking, this challenge just seems too great. It's a task that's beyond us. Maybe you think I won't be able to seize um, these uh, opportunities or put right what needs to be put right. Well, 1 Timothy encourages us that even though the challenges are great, God is greater than the challenges. And we need to have confidence in the greatness of God. That's a theme that runs through uh, 1 Timothy. As Paul um, urges Timothy to do these things, he reminds him again and again of the greatness of God and the victory of God. So in chapter 1 and verse 17, he reminds Timothy that God is the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. In chapter 3, verse 15, he is the living God, the one true sovereign ruler of the cosmos. In chapter 5 and verse 15, he is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. In the context of each of the uh, kind of trustworthy sayings, Paul also declares the greatness of God as a tremendous encouragement to uh, Timothy. Jesus Christ has been vindicated and won the victory. That's what um, Paul declares right at the heart of the letter in chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 16. Paul says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached amongst the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up to glory. Jesus has triumphed. He is risen, ascended and reigning, and he will ultimately appear to rule on earth. Our culture keeps telling us that we need to be on the right side of history. Well, 1 Timothy tells us that we are, because the right side of history is always God's side of history. And Jesus has won. We might feel completely inadequate, but God and the Lord Jesus are entirely sufficient for us. And we need to trust in him.